0: The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. If there were any kind of a silver lining to being in prison, it must be that people on the outside should have very low expectations of you. I'm thinking of Seinfeld. You know, Jerry decided to date a a gal who was in prison. This was the perfect relationship for him. And yet the Apostle Paul, with all the time that he spent in jail, accomplished so very much. And it makes me wonder whether the limitations on our lives are less imposed on us by others and, other, and our circumstances as they are by our own view of our potential, by our own sense of our identity And so today, as we continue our conversation with the Apostle Paul through his correspondence to the Philippians, we want to look at his self-understanding. What did he know about himself that allowed him to do all that he was able to do? So would you open up your Bible if you brought one to Philippians 3? If you didn't, there's a pew Bible in the rack in front of you. You'll find Philippians 3 on page 954 are going to read this morning from the beginning and the end of the chapter, Philippians 3, 1 through 11, and then 17 through 4.1. This is the Apostle Paul and the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not troublesome to me and for you, it's a safeguard. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too, have reason for confidence. In the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew, born of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, These I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection of, From the dead. Skipping down to verse 17. Brothers and sisters. Join in imitating me. And observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them. And now I tell you. Even with tears. Their end. Is destruction. Their. God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord, Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Well, who are you? Who are you? Who, who? You really want to know. Right? It's the question that you spend your whole life either ignoring, as you think you are, or on a constant pursuit, a quest to discover, well, who am I? What is a human being? What is a George? Don't be troubled by that question. That's my own affliction. <laughs> a few years ago, uh, a TSA worker at Denver International Air- Airport Laid down on that conveyor belt for your carry on luggage and slided himself right through the x ray machine you know there 's really no explanation for that. nobody quite knew why he did it. He was punished disciplined for it. yet I just think we have kind of a curiosity about what 's on the inside of the package you know what is in there after all? <laughs> Who am i my favorite uh, One of my favorite books of all time it was written by p d. Eastman. Are you? My mother. <laughs> it's a story about a bird uh, who's hatched in the nest. Uh, mom is in absentia, a wall. she's gone to get a worm for breakfast. and with no benefit of any mirror, this creature has no idea really what she is. And so she uh, takes the first step to find out, turns out to be a doozy, drops 20 feet and is on her way thinking that if I can find my mother, I might know what sort of a thing I am. So off she goes, walks right by her mother, sees a kitten and says, Are you my mother? And the kitten looks dumbly with no answer. So she walks on. Well, there's a hen. Are you my mother? There's a dog. Are you my mother? cow, a broken down car. Uh, A train, you know, an airplane that flies overhead. You think you're getting warm there, but it doesn't pause or stop to answer. And then my personal favorite, a steam shovel. Are you my mother? And all it answers is snort. You know, some of us really wonder if we aren't perhaps snorts. But no, the snort lifts up the bird and takes it back to its nest and drops it there, where it is rejoined by its mother. And looking uh, over its beak, past the beak of another and into the eyes of that mother, this little bird knows, no, I'm not a cat, I'm not a hen, I'm not a dog, I'm not a snort, I am a bird, and you are my mother." We try on a lot of different identities in life, don't we? It's like we stand at some mirror in a hat store trying them on. You know you've done it. It's a lot of fun to do. You go, how do I look with this one? No way, that's not me. Or how about this one? Well, I could grow into that. I could see myself. You know, on and on and on. And so we do in life. There are no shortage of people who would answer the question for you and for me of who you are. A lot of those people would like to sell something uh, to us, wouldn't they? I and mean, they tell us, just do it. And we want that cachet. We want to be that kind of person. We say, I, I'm, a, I'm really a Ford guy, you know, or no, we always drive Lexuses in our family. You know, that's a, it's not just about transportation. It's about what it says to you about who you are and what it allows you to say to others about the same. Someone says, if you tell me three groups you listen to, I can tell you who you are. You know, so our music tends to say something about ourselves as well. Or our sports teams. Now, when Paul talks about the dogs, by the way, hes hes he, it's a different kind of a dog, you know. So, I can... But, you know, to be a Husky fan, to be a Cubs fan, you know, it just says something about the mournful soul, you know. Your deep cries out to deep. <clears throat> Sometimes we get our identity from the city that we live in. And I, I don't know if I recommend this book, but I personally enjoy uh, a book by uh, Walker Percy, a southern uh, novelist, called Lost in the Cosmos, The Last Great Self-Help Book. And Walkie, the whole first third of the book is a series of questions and thought experiments that he asks. And he asks the question, you know, why is it that when uh, when people travel from afar to the Johnny Carson show in Burbank, California, you know, or, or, or Letterman or whatever there, they... They they cannot restrain themselves when someone from up front uses the name of their hometown, right? There's this kind of automatic reflux, whether you're from a really small village in Wisconsin, you know, or the second city, Chicago. And as soon as they say it, whether you like the place or not, you find yourself screaming, you know, in, in that studio. And he says, what is that? Is that just about hometown pride or is it about something deeper, something about who we think we are so he gives you a thought experiment, and I want to read this to you. Just imagine, he says, you're a native of New York City. You live in New York, work in New York, travel about the city with with no particular emotion, except a mild boredom, unease, exasperation, and a little dislike, especially for, say, Times Square and Brooklyn, and a longing for a Connecticut farmhouse. Well, you make enough money and move to Connecticut, get a farmhouse. Later, you become an astronaut and wander in space for years. You land on a strange, unexplored, you think, planet. But there you find a road sign with an arrow erected by a previous astronaut in the manner of G.I.s in World War II. And it's what the sign says, it says, Brooklyn, 9.6 light years away. Explain your emotion. And Walker Percy assumes that there's something, though you cannot stand Brooklyn, that goes, yes. Because it's not just a discovery of uh, the presence of prior astronauts. It's the discovery of the self on a foreign planet in space. This moment allows us to recognize who we are. Now, the Apostle Paul writes his letter to people who live in a city called Philippi. That's why we call it Philippians. And Philippi is a very significant city, and he knows that the Philippians draw their identity from their city. Let me tell you a little bit about Philippi. Philippi is in northeastern Greece, Macedonia. It's founded 400 years before the Apostle Paul sets foot in town. It was founded by uh, Philip II, who is the father of Alexander the Great. He's got a good pedigree in that city. In 167 B.C., the Romans come to town and they do what they do. They see and they conquer, right? So they conquered uh, Philippi. But it wasn't until 42 B.C., about a 100 years before Paul writes this letter, sometime in 8060, when Philippi really gets its fame. It hits the big time. Quite by accident, by the way. You remember Julius Caesar? And he's assassinated by whom? Brutus, et tu, Brute? Well, these guys, Brutus and Cassius, are on the run. And in pursuit are Mark, Antony, and Octavia. Octavia is a big name. He becomes Caesar Augustus and is emperor of the, the Roman Empire, the birth of Jesus. So we know that name until A.D. 14. So Mark, Antony, and Octavian are able to run into uh, Brutus and Cassius and stop them no other place than Philippi. That's the great, that's where the, that's where the whole thing, they stop the Republican forces comes to a grinding halt. And there's great celebration in this city. Now, if you're in charge in Rome, the last thing you want to do is bring a victorious army back into town, the Salty crews just riding on this wave of fame. So they, smartly, the Romans said, why don't we settle you right there? Philippi's a very nice town. And so they do. They divvy up estates for these warriors. Uh, there they set them to live on their pension. And there's a great deal of Roman pride in Philippi. In fact... Uh, Rome will confer upon Philippi the highest of all privileges that it can. In Latin, it's called theius, uh, uh, Romana, the us Romana, the Roman law to, to live in uh, Philippi was to live on Roman soil or Italian soil, just like an embassy is today, sort of considered native soil of a foreign country. And to be a citizen of Philippi was to be a, a citizen of Rome. And they would pattern their lives uh, after the Roman way of living. Uh, they spoke Latin. This is Greece. But they're speaking Latin. In fact, uh, today, archaeologists have found inscriptions, the vast majority of which are not in Greek but in Latin. There are some Greek ones, but they're mostly in Latin. They would wear Latin dress, the, ro- the, t- the togas, I guess. And, and they had, you know, they patterned their constitution after the Roman constitution. And they had... Uh, The Roman law that governed justice and economic practices, even the way the city was laid out as it grew over the years, tended to take the form and pattern of the imperial capital uh, itself. So you can draw your identity from a great city, can't you? And the Apostle Paul trades on that reality when he writes this letter. He says, friends, when you think about your identity... I want you to think about a great city. It's a city that the apostle John will have a vision of, the second to last chapter of the Bible in his revelation. He sees the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem descending from heaven down to earth. And Paul hasn't seen that yet. It's still yet to come, but he says, you know what? You can live in that city even today. More than that, he says in verse 20, our citizenship Is in heaven. You know, they're expecting him to finish that sentence, is in Rome. But he says, is in heaven. Pride yourselves on it. Live into it. One of the reasons so many Christians were persecuted and martyred by the Roman authorities was that they refused to confess Caesar is Lord. And a little bit of incense in the offering. And that was all that was expected of them. But see, one of the things about being a citizen of Rome is to have this profession. Caesar is Lord. And so theologian N.T. Wright, he, he thinks that this basic Christian creed is deliberately set against that. and Sort of an edge of defiance to say, Jesus is Lord. He is our Caesar. And we are his citizens. There's a profession There's also a set of practices that come using the language, the dress, the manner of trade. And so Paul says, you know, Jesus also brings a way into our lives. He is the way, the way of the kingdom, and we can live in that reality, though we live in Philippi. And finally, there's a privilege. It's the privilege of a power that can come. You can bet that if Philippi ever finds itself the least bit threatened, Well, they can call on, count on all the imperial resources of Rome to come to their aid. And so to you, Paul says, citizens of heaven, raise your standards because you have heavenly chariots at your disposal. I love what we find in the second century, a letter called the letter to Diogenes, He goes, you know, what is it about these followers of Jesus? They look just like us. They dress just like like us. But if you get to know them, something very different about them. He writes, uh, Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or have some peculiar lifestyle. They live in both Greek and foreign cities wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs and clothing, food, and the other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their own citizenship. They, uh, uh, they live in their own native lands, but as aliens. As citizens, they share all things with others. They're generous. But like aliens, suffer all things. Every foreign country is to them as their native country, and every native land as a foreign country. They're treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if they are being given new life. I wonder what they'll write about University Presbyterian Church in the city of Seattle. We can take our identity from our city. But how do we take identity from a city we've never visited? How do you harbor memories of a place you've never been? I've never been to China. And I... I can't imagine what it would be like for me to begin to live in a Chinese way. And if it's hard to live in a Chinese way when you've never been there, what is it like to live in a heavenly way when you've certainly never been there? Well, the answer to the question lies in our relationships. It lies in the same kind of a quest that this little bird in Are You My Mother undertakes. Because social psychiatrists, psychologists, will tell us that we negotiate into our identity. We negotiate our identity in relationships. How do you identify yourself? Well, I'm oftentimes the husband of Anne or the father of Harvey, and you're the grandmother of Ruth. We know who we are. Because of the people in our lives and the relationship we have to them. By the way, that's why when your colleague gets promoted, it's so hard for you. Because you've defined your identity in relationship to them. And be careful, because they're a moving target. That's going to affect how you see yourself. This is why sometimes that the people who are most successful in life are oftentimes the most insecure. Because they know very well there's a little element of luck in their success. And people expect great things from them. And they are tempted. That is very compelling to believe your own press clippings, believe in your own greatness. But you know that lightning rarely strikes twice. And If your identity is sunk into your success or your achievement, be very, very careful. We negotiate our identity in relationship to our homes, our neighborhoods. Are we in the right place? Do we drive the right Kind of car? Do we have the right string of initials after our last name or our title? Is our job an okay job? Does it say enough about who I am? We also define our identity in relationship to our hurts and to our pain and our suffering. And so we sometimes extend the victimization that we have experienced by continuing to live in that as victims. And virtually re-traumatize ourselves by wearing that same identity. To all this, the Apostle Paul says, watch out. That's what he says really here in in verse 3, the 2. He uses the word watch out or beware three times. Look out. Watch out for those people who will shape your identity in any other way than in Jesus Christ. Look out for them. He knows that there's a group of people who have been circulating about. Theologians call Judaizers. They were Jewish believers. Paul is a Jewish believer, and that's a wonderful thing. But these Judaizers would claim that in order to come to faith in Jesus Christ, you first have to become a Jew. You first have to be circumcised. You, You have to submit yourself to kosher laws. You have to uphold the Torah and the laws. Paul says, be very careful. Even I could negotiate my identity Very favorably in relation to all of my accomplishments and credentials. But I have ceased to do so since coming to know Jesus Christ. You know when you give advice sometimes? Trying to be helpful to somebody else, but you're often giving advice really to yourself. We tend to give the kind of advice that we would like to receive, don't we? And so here I think we catch the Apostle Paul kind of with a window into his own sense of self-identity. He processes it. Aloud in front of the Philippians. He says, Well, you know, I used to think of myself as valuable because I was circumcised, because I was an Israelite, you know, because I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, because I did these good works. I was zealous, held myself to the higher, the Pharisaical standard of the law. I pursued the church to get rid of those heretics. All of these things were credentials. And yet now, he says, I take everything. And count it, but dung. I mean, that's the polite word for it. But he's very strong in his language here. He says, in light of the surpassing value of one thing, that's knowing Jesus Christ. Some of you have had an exchange student in your home. And you begin to pick up that accent and some of those customs. And when it's time for them to leave, you, you're speaking with a, you're saying, good day, mate. And no worries. You know, you pick that up. And so in the same way, though, we've never been to heaven. If we allow Jesus Christ into our home and we get to know him and his ways. And if we begin to see ourselves in the way that he looks at us, we'll know what it's like to live as a citizen of heaven. A lot of people feel like come to church and when they start to think about death, you know, it's so somber and heavy. And Paul talked about death. He's not afraid of death, but what his interest is, is in how to live, to live, Uh, to live in a a colony like, uh, like Philippi was. It was really a colony. It was an intrusion of Rome into Greece. It's not to assume that someday I'm going to get to Rome. Someday I'm going to live in the imperial capital. Like we think, well, the whole point of the game is someday I'm going to get to heaven. Paul says, absolutely not. This thing, Christianity, the kingdom of God, what it's all about, it's heaven coming into our city. It's an invasion. It's the citizenship of heaven being realized right here on our streets. Well, Paul says, you know what? To find out who I am as a citizen of heaven, I'm not going to negotiate with anybody other than Jesus. Not negotiating with anybody else. Because Jesus Christ has given me infinite value. The very Son of God has offered his life for you. Every single one of us in this room has been valued by the self-loving offering of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And once you know your value, once you've negotiated who you are, then you can leverage that, friends. Then you can spend that. Then you can invest that. If you're worth a lot, you've got a lot you can leverage. And so Paul would live into that. The problem with a lot of us and our identity is that we're in the wrong data set. That was the issue, another bird story, the ugly duckling, right? Hans Christian Andersen. The ugly duckling is really a swan, and he's beautiful. And there's nothing wrong with him, and there's nothing wrong with the ducklings. The problem is that the swan ends up with his egg and a bunch of duck eggs, and when he hatches, if he sees his identity in relation to these ducks, he sees himself as the wrong color. He sees himself... As the wrong size and lacking in coordination. But it's not until he finds himself in a swan pond that he sees himself as he really is. Well, when you know who you are, you can act the way you can act. Think of Harry Potter. Well, Harry Potter is just an average kid, just growing up in a regular home. All there's different about him is this little scar. That scar is indicative that he lives at the heart of this kind of cosmic struggle. And he's got powers far beyond his wildest imagination. And the story of those books is the story of him beginning to realize and to live into that reality. And in the same way, Paul says, This is my prayer for you that you begin to live like a citizen of heaven. Paul knew how to play the citizen card. He knew how to play the Rome card. Have you noticed that? A couple of times when Paul gets himself into a pinch, he pulls out the Roman citizenship card. It's like he kept it in his pocket. You know, he wanted it just in case he needed it. Remember when he came to Philippi in Acts 16? They throw him in jail. They mistreat him. They abuse him. And then he gets out. And he says, do you guys think it's okay to treat a Roman citizen this way? And they go, Roman citizen? Remember, this is Philippi. There's great pride in this. And they go, we didn't know you were a Roman citizen. And he goes, no, you didn't, did you? And he goes, well, you're free to go, sir. And he goes, you know, I don't feel like going, actually. I'm going to stick around for a little while. I want to talk with the authorities here, you know. (laughs) He plays the Rome card. He'll do the same thing in Jerusalem, just as they're about to beat him. He goes, is that okay to do to a Roman citizen? But more importantly than that, the Apostle Paul knows how to play the heaven card. Like that's what he did the night before. You know the story. Paul and Silas are in jail. They're stopped dead in their tracks. Mission accomplished, or at least aborted. And Paul says, you know what? I am going to play the heaven card. I am going to believe there's a greater good in this trauma. I am going to call upon the resources The profession, the pattern, and the privileges of power that I have as a heavenly citizen stuck in this little jail cell. And he begins to pray. And they begin to sing a hymn of psalm. And they express their joy. And for whatever reason, God decides to rock the house, to pop the hinges on that jail door. And out he walks a free man. When Paul writes this letter to Philippi, he's chained between two elite Roman guards in the imperial uh, capital. This is Rome now. He's actually in Rome. And these guys are the bodyguards of the Caesar. But he's thinking to himself, these guys have no idea who I am. Where will you be this week? Where will you be tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning? What do they know about you in that place? You're going to let them tell you who you are, your employer, your customer, your professor, your boyfriend? Or are you going to look into the eyes of Jesus and let him define for you your identity? Are you going to play the heaven card? Abraham, when he stood there at the altar with his beloved son, the child of promise, he played the heaven card when he believed that God would send a provision. Moses, as he stood there trapped with the Egyptians rushing towards them at the Red Sea, played the heaven card when he put his hands out over the sea and stepped onto dry ground. David, when he stood before a boy, before a giant with nothing but five smooth stones in his hand, played the heaven card. Or Elisha, as his son Gehazi goes out for a Starbucks in the morning, And he finds out that we are surrounded by the enemy. And Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And not only surrounded them, but all of their enemies are the chariots of fire. The hosts of heaven at their disposal plays the heaven card. And Jesus Christ, as he spreads his arm on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Plays the heaven card. This week, you and I are going to get stuck. We're going to find ourselves in a place where there's just nothing that can be done. We've got really one choice, and that's it. This is what a citizen of Seattle would have to do. Maybe it's a temptation. Maybe it's a disappointment. Maybe it's a suffering of some kind, of loss, of death, or disease. Maybe it's a relationship that's not working the way you want it to work. But can you catch yourself and say, wait a minute, who am I? Can you look into the eyes of Jesus and know him? Paul says, I want to know Jesus. And then seeing your identity in your Savior, will you play the heaven card? Will you do what only a citizen of heaven can afford to do in those circumstances? Only then can we live as citizens of heaven in the city of Seattle. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess this morning that Jesus is Lord and that that resurrection power witnessed by so many on Easter Sunday and the days that followed is at our disposal because he has given his life for us and he will transform this body of humiliation into a body of glory. Someday. And we pray that today, not just as individuals, but as a community, the story, the letter that will be written about this time and this place is that University Presbyterian Church, together with all the churches of Seattle, lived as citizens of heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.